0: Good morning to all of you. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I I was initially going to call this little mini-series a break from Hebrews 11. We do preach through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Hebrews for a couple of years, and we've been in Hebrews 11 for several months actually, and there's, there's some practical lessons there. There has been, but it's a lot of theology. And I thought, well, it's probably time for something really basic and practical. And, and I initially came up with the idea of a summer challenge, you know. Um, and I got some other counsel, so we're calling it Summer Series. Being a living sacrifice and offering self-sacrificial service to God and sincere love to others. And so we're going to take four weeks to go through expositionally through the book of, or the chapter, uh, chapter 12 of the book of Romans. We haven't even got to the practical section of Hebrews yet. That will come in chapter 12 there as well. And it's interesting that the idea of doctrine and application is really important, right? There's some churches that just seven steps to having a happy marriage or to being financially successful, and it's and they, they just try to make it practical, but if if you don't have the bedrock and the foundation of who God is and who we are in Christ, it's mere academic steps without any heart to it. And so doctrine is important. The book of Romans is is glorious, right? chapters one to eleven, Paul has set forth much doctrine, um, the ruin of man, the justification by faith the, sanctification, how we grow in holiness, and and even God's sovereignty put on display where if the Apostle Paul had an emoji, maybe he would actually text it to somebody, mind blown, right? This is like good stuff. And that's essentially what he says at the end of 11 there. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's mind blown, right? Because of all these benefits that we have in the Book of Romans, there's a, a you know a, a transition here, beginning chapter twelve all the way to sixteen, where it's exhortation. You know, Paul doesn't begin his letters with exhortation. He doesn't begin his letters with application. He lays that foundation that is all essential. You can think of it like this: He lays forth the doctrine and then he gives the duty in response to that. Or he, put, he, he sets forth the creed, and now our conduct should follow. Or even the indicative and the imperative, as we will see some commands in our text today. Kenneth Weiss says this, Doctrine must always precede exhortation, since in doctrine the saint is shown his exalted position, which makes the exhortation to a holy life a reasonable one. In doctrine, the saint is informed as to the resources of grace he possesses with which to obey the exhortations. So Romans 12 is very, very practical. I think there's several lessons that we're going to glean from this. Everything from showing hospitality to using our gifts. But, but even today, really just looking at those first two verses, is, is living a sacrificial life. That means taking risk for the Lord, right? That means stepping out as a church that that we're not going to buckle and cower over authoritarian tyrannical governments, right? Because who is our king? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? We serve the triune God and we must do what he commands in our word, in our Bibles. And so we have to Sometimes what that'll look like is actually taking risk for God. But the question that I want you to wrestle with is, is, am I living a sacrificial life for the glory of God? How, How does that manifest itself? You see, God wants our whole hearts. He wants us to be fully devoted to Him. Remember the rich young ruler? He had a lot of little, he could tick a lot of boxes, right? I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. What does Jesus say? I see into the one area that you are closing your heart of covetousness, right? And so too for some of us. We give the Lord 99%, but this 1%, we keep a key to a locked room where we can go and get away from God. That ought not to be. Well, let's read our text. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, in light of chapters 1 to 11... and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we confess we will have no or little understanding of this text if you do not send the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to, as it were, give us the eyeglasses to discern each letter and each word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon this place, that you give us understanding, that you would challenge us with this summer challenge of of how we are doing in sacrificial living for today and serving you and serving others in genuine love and even loving our enemies. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is addressing regenerate Christians. Those who have been born again. Okay, He's not addressing um, you know, all men indiscriminately. And there's several people that actually believe that they are a Christian only later to discover that they're not. We had a three glorious baptisms. One of those testimonies was I was in the church for 15 years, thought I, I did everything and thought I was saved, and now now she's powerfully saved. Roman Catholics are deceived into thinking that they're saved because what do they look at? Their infant baptism, the, that sacrament, and then the other sacraments. And so they they falsely have an assurance based on some Superstitious act, really. But Baptists aren't much different. Mainline Baptists, you know what I'm saying, right? Um, Mainline Baptists can also look at their baptism from maybe when they were three, four, or five, or six years old. But more often, they're deceived that they base their salvation on a superstitious prayer. It's not a baptism from a priest, but it's a prayer as though it has some supernatural power in it. No, we who are truly in Christ recognize we were once the misfits of the world, the rebels before God, but He radically converted us, justified us, and we are being sanctified. And so in light of these indes- indescribable mercies, therefore we to present ourselves as a sacrifice unto God. We still fight sin. We battle sin uh, and, and so it can be a challenge to do well. We're, we're still prone to selfishness and, and all of these types of things. And that's why we need to hear messages like this to remind us. You see, if you, it begins really with the, the mind and the heart. What are you thinking on? What are you filling your mind with, right? If you're filling it with lust, well, guess what? Eventually, you probably will commit adultery. If you're coveting something, whether it's a, a belonging or something like that, eventually you'll sin to get it. And so it's so important that we discipline our minds and our hearts. You see, the real you is on the inside. It's, a, it's internal. The Proverbs in 23.7 says, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. See, you might come on a Sunday and have a pious exterior, right? But you could be fooling us. And God alone sees the heart. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each according to his ways. So, the most accurate gauge of your spiritual life is what's going on in the inside. Okay, It's and the most, another gauge is what you do when you're alone and no one sees you. You see? So, those are just some litmus tests for us. So, two simple points today. No outline in your bulletin this week. I'll try to have one for next week. Just questions. First, are you offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Obviously, just comes right out of the text. And the second point we'll look at in verse two are you being conformed to the world? Or transformed by the Spirit. So, first of all, let's dig into verse one. Are you offering yourself as a living sacrifice? We're to consecrate ourselves to God by the mercies of God. First of all, there's a lot to be said here. Therefore, and then this, I urge you. We don't use that terminology much today, do we? You know, I urge you, Oscar. Right? We don't use that that terminology, but but Paul is using it. It's a, it's a strong, get your attention. And, and it's not indiscriminately, as I said, I urge you, brethren, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Your greatest motivation for laying down your life for the Lord is not fear of punishment. It's not fear of hell. It's not trying to be made acceptable by your good works and your performance because earlier Paul had said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, right? Ultimately, your supreme motivation is an accurate view and appreciation for the mercies of God. What is mercy? It's a compassion or a pity Arising from a miserable state of one's need. This is the basis for our voluntarily offering ourselves. It's the very mercies of God that we have received. It's a it's a, to put it another way, a response of gratitude for what God has done for you. Says earlier in chapter 6, you were dead to sin, but now you're alive in Christ. You're alive. So what should that look like? What, what, what are some of these mercies that he's set forth already in this book? There's so many. This is just a, a, a sampling to remind you. And, and I know you're, you're familiar with a lot of these. Back in chapter 2, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This kindness... He's described love several times. Chapter 5 and verse 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been what? Poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Later in chapter 8, of course, he would talk about that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. He talks about His grace. He talks about us being adopted in the midst of chapter 8 here that he says, all that are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. For such a closeness, a nearness. His, His grace that's been poured out, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the promises of the, of the glory and, and, and to come, the future glory that awaits us. It's just a, a little sampling of God's mercy that He's shown us. The greatest mercy of all is, has been a theme, really, of a large part of Romans, and that's justification by faith. Not justification by works, justification by faith. that takes place in the very court of heaven, right? I mean, God declares us righteous in time and space after we are regenerated. And in a sense, justification is eschatological because it will be fully realized when we pass from this life. And that's based on the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took all of our sin, God's people, laid upon Christ, satisfied the Father's wrath. So this consecration to God, by the very mercies of God, presents your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is lifelong devotion. This isn't like you check a box for six months or you go through a one-year discipleship program and then it's kind of like you're off the hook. You can just float and flounder around. It's a lifelong commitment, a daily commitment. It's true biblical discipleship to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you've heard me every time I baptize somebody. One of the questions I ask is it your desire to serve Christ all of your days It's not just obeying in this ordinance today and maybe do a few good works. All of our days should be devoted to Him. Well, secondly, under this point, to present our bodies to God. We're obligated to offer ourselves to God as a a living and a holy sacrifice. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, says this, If so poor a worm is I, May I thy great glory live, all my actions sanctify, all my words and thought revive. Claim me for thy service, claim all I have and all I am. The story of a a Baptist church years ago, they were passing the offering plate and it it got all the way down to the end where Saleh is sitting. And the little girl took the offering plate and put it on the ground and stepped inside of it. And the usher said, what are you doing? Now I learned in, in Sunday school, I'm to give my whole self to God. This is the way I'm doing it. It's a beautiful thing. So these characteristics here, um, three really, right? Living. It proceeds from a regenerate heart, the, the new life in Christ. It's holy. It's been set apart for God. And it's acceptable, which means well-pleasing to God. It has the idea of like the Levitical offerings that were offered by the Levitical priest unto God. In 6.13, he says, do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, as or to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see, it was with your bodies that you sinned before you came to Christ. And now your body being redeemed and regenerate, not sinless, but regenerate, now it's we're to lay down our lives through the Lord it's both body and soul is the idea here. You know, the Greek philosophers would say that the spirit is good, but it's trapped in this wicked evil body. No, it's body and soul. Genesis two and verse seven. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust to the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. First Corinthians six, nineteen, Paul tells them. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. This means every part of our body, right? Its soul inside, and but our, our bodies. But think of it. It's it begins in the mind. We keep our mind pure, whatever is good, right, and just dwell on these things. Philippians four eight. A paraphrase of Philippians four eight. How about the ear? The ear. Let's present the ear unto God by not listening to foul jokes, by not listening to these things that do not edify and lift up. How about the tongue? Oh man, let's offer the tongue to build others up, to speak words of encouragement, to speak the truth. Yes and amen. How about the eyes? Not allowing your eyes to land on something that is wicked and worthless things. How about your hands? Helping others working hard, like all those people that came to the work day yesterday were working hard and using their hands. How about their feet right in chapter ten it's how how beautiful are the feet i'm not gonna how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things right and so the feet we take the gospel with our feet. how beautiful are those feet. In other words, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, all that you do should be for His glory. John Murray has said, the use of our bodies is characterized by conscience, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. In other words, He wants our best, right? Do we give God our leftovers? As Are you prone to do that? You just kind of get the leftovers. Years ago, Queen Mary made a practice of visiting Scotland once a year. The people loved her. She'd walk with the children through the streets. And she had walked further than what she anticipated. Several dark clouds were coming in. And so they came unexpectedly. And so she went to a nearby house and asked to borrow an umbrella. She wasn't dressed in her royal gown and all of that. She looked like another woman right and so the woman didn't recognize the queen and was reluctant to give the stranger her best umbrella but over here she had one she was probably going to be throwing away soon anyway it was kind of tattered you know the ribs kind of like there's two ribs all broken that kind of thing and so the next day oh and, and she had said i'll bring it back tomorrow i'll send it back to you right and so the next day, there's a knock at the door. When the lady opened it, it was a royal guard who was holding in her hand the old tattered umbrella. Having stated that the queen sent me, she asked me to thank you for loaning her this. For a moment at first, the, the homeowner, the woman, was stunned, and then she burst into tears. What an opportunity I missed, she cried. I didn't give the queen my best. Well, you know, the obvious application here is what about for us? Are we giving God our leftovers? Are we giving him just kind of, you know, are we giving him our first fruits? I mean, that's an Old Testament principle that carries into the new. Well, thirdly, under this point, living sacrifices of the new covenant are far more of of far more value than the dead ones of the old covenant. It says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Not dead animals, but renewed creations who have been born again. The psalmist says in Psalm 50, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving to perform vows to the Most High. This holy sacrifice. Now that we're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ. Our life should be morally pure as we are more and more sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ. Think of the Old Testament lambs, of which we belabored in Hebrews 9 and 10, right? They had to be one year without spot, without wrinkle. They had to be pure. It's bringing the best of the litter. You know, it's not a, you know, Jonathan sending Noah out Go on out to the flock. Get the one that has the limp and you know that ugly spot. We need to get rid of that one anyway. No, the best, right? And that principle carries over to us. Romans 6.19, For I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. Now this, is, this sacrifice, a living sacrifice, obviously is not a propitiatory sacrifice that takes away sin. But it's just laying down our lives, being willing to serve him. Even a sacrifice of praise, as it says at the end of Hebrews do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased Hebrews 13 and verse 16 Our fourth subpoint under here is this is your spiritual service of worship and that's how he rounds it out to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God and then this which is, is is supplied your spiritual service of worship. Different translations translate this differently. It's best just to understand uh, the actual meanings of the word. Um, this spiritual service or reasonable service, reasonable in light of who we are in Christ. Chapters one to eleven. It's it's the that's the expected result. You might think our worshiping must be wholehearted, from a consecrated heart, with our mind and our wills and our words and our deeds, all directed towards God. The word for spiritual can mean rational. It can mean reasonable. It's where we get the word logical, actually. Um, pertaining to being carefully thought through and thoughtful. A thoughtful service is one lexicon definition. The only other New Testament occurrence is in First Peter two. 2 Long for the what? Pure milk of the Word. Pure milk of the Word. This spiritual milk. And, and it's, it's a spiritual worship. It's reasonable. It's logical. First Peter 2.5 And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're new covenant priests in a new temple, right? And then this service or worship uh, has the idea of a a menstruation unto God. It's actually, the word only occurs about six times, I believe, in the New Testament. But um, in Hebrews 9, when we were in that, we saw it twice. And so in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship, that's the word there, down in verse 6. Now when these things had been so prepared, the priests were continually entering the outer, outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. And so you go back to Romans 12, and which is your spiritual service of worship, a valid translation, which, which is your divine worship unto God. Laying down of everything. Taking risk for the Lord. Rendering wholehearted devotion to Him is the only logical and reasonable response for those of us who are in Christ. I'd like to give you an example of somebody who really gave all and they were a living sacrifice. William Borden, Borden of Yale as he's called in the early 1900s, uh, was heir to the family fortune, Borden Milk, you might remember. And when he graduated high school, he was already a millionaire. He sat, this is the early 1900s, a millionaire there, and it's like, what, a 50 millionaire or something these days, right? But William Borden went on to graduate work at Princeton Seminary, and when he finished his studies in Princeton, he sailed for China because he was hoping to work with the Muslims and spread the gospel there. But he stopped first in Egypt to learn Arabic. When he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within one month, he was dead. 25 years old. When news got back of Borden's death, it was cabled back. The name was well known. The, the, the family was well known. Every American newspaper covered it. The One biographer says in the introduction, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth as he did give away his wealth, supported missions, but he gave himself in such a joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Do you catch that? that? That he gave of himself that, that, that it, it, was, it was a privilege and not a sacrifice. That's Mary Taylor in her introduction. Borden's untimely death was it a waste, not in God's plan? Not in God's plan. Prior to his death, Borden wrote these words in his Bible. Some of you know them. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Isn't that a good example of living your life sacrificially? No, not because he died at 25 years old, but because he wanted to see the Gospel spread. Because he wanted to be useful in the Kingdom of God. like Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, right? So that's the first point. And the second point will be not as long. So this admonition to offer ourselves, and now he says here in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are you being conformed to the world today Are transformed by the Holy Spirit. You see, you can't offer this type of spiritual worship of which he's speaking if you're being conformed to the world, right? You've, You've got the world on your shoulders as you were so that you're useless. To be sure, the church of the Romans were made up of real Christians, but they were still real sinners, just like you and I. Like us, this side of heaven, we still struggle with sin and worldliness. When he when he says do not be conformed to this word world it's it's where we get the word schematic right a schematic lays out all the details with something it's a pattern as it were and so a form to a pattern or a mold you might think of you might think of the 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 jello when you want to make jello look like a snowman you use a what you use a what are they what do they call those things <laughs> cookie cutter or something like that. Or you want stars or you know, whatever, a Christmas tree you use. You, know, you use something to conform the cookie or the jello to that pattern. And Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world. This is, it's, it's an imperative. It, 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 it's a command. The verb indicates an adoption or imitation of a posed or received mode of conduct, Godet says in his commentary. The only other occurrence is 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children do not become conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance. The word world here is not cosmos, it's Ionius, it's, it really has the idea of age, but it's contrasted, I think he's using this word age, compared to the age to come, which will be perfect. And so, do not be conformed to this present age Trench puts it like this, all the floating mass of thoughts and opinions and maxims and speculations and hopes and impulses and aims and aspirations at any time in this current current world. So as a redeemed sinner, we're not to be conformed to this world, but to live for the glory of God. And furthermore, as you're, the world would seek to, to press you into its mold, The more you give in to temptation, the more you give in to temptation, the more you give in to temptation, the more enslaved you will be. You'll find yourself enslaved again. So we must resist it. 1 Corinthians 7 says, For the form of this world is passing away. It's it's got a similar root, um, schema. So don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You know, this, the peer pressure is not just a teen problem, right? Men in the workplace, in the office, when they're talking about a certain new secretary and their looks or whatever, or on a construction site and these kinds of things, or women when you go to the gym and the other two women next to you are slandering their husbands and gossiping that you don't jump in and follow suit. But you think about how I can even speak up against that. I need to reject ungodly influences that seek to control our thinking. You know, it's it's amazing the news, major news outlets, MSNBC, CNN, and even Fox are trying to indoctrinate you. It really is, and it's very powerful. Lust for pleasure, fame, Longing for money and success. Perhaps it's materialism. Maybe it's just exalting self. You want people to think well of you, and so you prop yourself up at every chance you get. Maybe it's um, even the idea that there's no absolutes whatsoever. Even some of this critical race theory that they're trying to shove down everyone's throat right now. Uh, The idea that socialism is really good. Let me give you a paycheck every month so you can stay home and have no incentive to work. These are worldly things, right? The Bible talks about how work is a blessing to work with our hands so that we might not only have something to provide for ourselves that we might share with those who are in need. Practical guidelines. Don't let the media dictate your values. By imposing worldly ideas? How about social media? Boy, there's an indoctrination there, isn't it? You know, between all the, I'm not even going to name them all, you know them all, but uh, there is such a drive to push forth a certain secular agenda. I've already mentioned the news outlets. Just, how about television commercials? You know, that's It's just enticing and enticing and enticing and brainwashing. How about university nowadays? Secular education is a very dangerous place if you don't have a strong commitment to the Lord and you can be able to allow all that indoctrination to just bounce right back off of you. It's no wonder so many kids that grow up in the church end up leaving the church during those college years. Yeah, some were probably never saved. But when you're indoctrinated like that for four years, how about the redefinition of homosexuality, the redefinition of marriage? I mean, I remember prop was a Prop eight in California 10 years ago, or whatever it was, that you know, the gay marriage thing. And, and, and then you think, well, how much further can the moral slide go and look at where it's at now? Transgenderism and all of this, 26 different sexes and all of this crazy stuff. About the lie of a, what abortion is, it's just flesh. It's just a choice. You, you have a choice. You see, these are all worldly things, worldly things. Even the church, the church, is seeking to sometimes please the culture. You have this term, the woke churches, that are just pandering at everything the culture says to do. That's wrong. Or even churches that set aside key doctrines and ignore that. That's all worldly stuff. Do not be conformed to this world, but, a huge contrast, B-U-T, capital letters, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not conforming to the world is not enough, but you must be inwardly transformed and renewed, right? And here's the second command we have in in the passage here is to be transformed. Do not be conformed negatively, but be transformed. Those are the two commands that you have in this text here. The word here that's used is where we get metamorphosis from. This idea of transformation. Literally, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was what? Transfigured before them, right? But here it's speaking of figuratively. It's a change inwardly in the fundamental character or condition To be changed or transformed. For us, it's an inward transformation that Paul is speaking of here. Of course, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. He states in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the God are being what? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as From the Lord and Spirit. I mean, a beautiful illustration of this, guys, is a butterfly, right? There's four stages that a butterfly goes through. It's a metamorphosis, literally. There's four distinct stages the egg, the larva, the pupa, and then the adult stage. And in that pupa stage, it resembles that tiny, leathery pouch. And it's known as a chrysalis, and and the result of putating, it's transforming from the larva stage. The butterfly blur- breaks out of its exoskeleton by wiggling out of their skin. The spiny appendage appears at the bottom of the abdomen and is called the cremaster. The butterfly connects the cremaster to the silky pad and hangs there to rest. Many body parts are visible, including the wings and the abdomen and the legs and the eyes. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture there. You you know, there's over 15,000 different species of butterflies. Isn't that amazing? Talk about the creative power of God. And let me ask you young people, serious question here. Um, What is more attractive that slimy little butterfly, I mean, it's a butterfly, caterpillar, <laughs> that is inching along, That's kind of all hairy, or a monarch butterfly with all of the colors. And, and that's really a, a comparison to a sinner that's black and dark and crawling around on its belly in rebellion to God compared to a child of God that's been renewed and spreads its wings in serving the Lord problem with fundamentalism is it focuses too much on externals. It doesn't deal with the internal things, right? You know the mantra. um, Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, and don't go with girls that do. You know, it just leads to this legalism of not doing this and not doing all this and having all of these rules, right? Rather than being inwardly transformed. Our scripture reading, I chose Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above. Not on the things of this earth. Not being conformed to this world. Later in Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self and is being renewed, see that again? Renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of, of the one who created him. So the goal is, is to have the mind of Christ, to have the right view of work and recreation and all of these types of things. What would Jesus think of the music that you listen to or the Netflix shows that you watch or the purchases that you've made in the last three months? What would Jesus think of those? Or here's one. Ask yourself, what is the, maybe it's been a while since you've done math, what's the percentage of time that I spend in the Word compared to social media? Right? That's something you could ask yourself as well. Well, finally here, transformation leads to a confirmation of the will of God. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, now see the so that in the passage? That's called a hina clause. This is the reason why. That you may prove what is the will of God. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, this word prove is dokumazo. It has the idea of approving after testing. Okay, It's like with metals that are fired, right? Testing for true gold and then you approve it. And so that's the idea, that you may prove what the will of God is. Your renewed mind enables you to discern the Lord's will. You can test all things. You have discernment. And as you grow, you will know what pleases the Lord most. What is good? What is acceptable and perfect? Now, you ever ask yourself, um, well... Think of any anything that, that comes down the pike. Maybe it's a, a young girl that is finds herself pregnant. And so she's like, what's the will of God? I know God doesn't want me to have to have a child for the rest of my life. I'm only 17. Well, you go through this. Well, is an abortion good? No. Is it acceptable? It's acceptable to the culture out there, the death culture out there, but it's not acceptable to God. And the idea of perfect is the idea of, of something that's complete, okay? And so you can run through this, the grid, with any major decisions that you have in your life that you may prove what the will of God is. John Murray again, if life is aimless, stagnant, and fruitless, and lacking in content, it is because we are not entering by experience into the richness of God's will. I mentioned about William Borden earlier. I'd like to tell you about John Patton. I know I've talked about him before, but he gave his life to winning the cannibals there in the New Herbities for over 40 years. And before he was leaving, he, he was meeting with some ministers there in England. And the critics were saying, you can't go there. You'll never survive. You'll never have any fruit, right? These kinds of things. And And there's this interchange with Mr. Dixon. He says, you'll be eaten by cannibals. He answered. And then Patton said, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in a great day, my resurrection body will arise just as fair as yours in the likeness of my risen Savior. You see the point here. Yeah, 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 of course there's a thousand reasons why not to go. And by the way, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the amount of fruit and the number of Christians that came from Patton's ministry is off the charts. Well, a couple of concluding um, comments for us here. We need to be living sacrifices, sacrificial living. We need to have this in our mind as we're considering and planning the course of our days. You see, your doctrine and what you believe about God must be applied in our lives. What we believe affects our practice and what we do. Right, What we think about God and what we think about man and what we think about the condition of this world will shape and motivate and lay out a course of what we will do with our lives to live consecrated lives to God. We're not singing it today, but take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow with ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite will I withhold. Your homework, go listen, to take my life and let it be this afternoon. Not a mite would I withhold. What, what, hey, sacrificial living includes uh, sacrificial giving, Right? giving of our resources. We don't pass a plate here. We have a black box in the back and God provides for all of our needs. But there might be somebody here that doesn't understand the principle of tithing and the rough 10% Old Testament principle. The point is is that you want to support the work of the ministry. You want to see our missionaries that are back there. We've got our missions board back. You want to see those missionaries thrive and, and see a blessing in their ministry and be cared for. Tithing's important. Calvin had this seal. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. My heart I offer to you promptly and with a full heart. And your devotion to God should grow as you are more sanctified. Your motive needs to be the mercy of God. Not trying to earn your way to heaven. Calvin again says this, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. We were singing those songs earlier to the the gravity of how much we're indebted to His mercy and His love that He showed us spurs adoration and praise. Maybe you're here today and you haven't experienced this mercy of God. Maybe you're not converted. Have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus? I know the world is saying that education and money and all these other things will contribute more to your happiness. But it's wrong. It's the lie of the devil. Listen, the psalmist sums it up in Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. True contentment comes from being satisfied in God alone, not the, the tinsel and the twinkles of this world. And so if you're outside of Christ, confess your sins and come to Him. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to apply this very basic, in many ways, simple message Lord, that we would be those that every day are asking, How can I take risk for God? How can I maybe be bold and share the gospel with that neighbor, with that coworker? How can I take up my time and pick up the phone and call somebody and seek to give them encouragement, an encouraging word, as we learned from our encouragement conference in February. Encouragement is adrenaline to the soul, and to be those that, as it were, have a spiritual epi-pen of which we seek to build one another up. Lord, be with us in this mini-series to learn, additionally, what it is to actually serve you, to walk in humility, to not think more of ourselves than we ought, to genuinely love one another, and all the various facets of which that's displayed. So, Lord, we thank you.